Chapter 3 The Myrtle Forests About half a mile north of the villa, the olive grove thinned out, and there was a great flat basin, fifty or sixty acres in extent, on which no olives grew. Here was only a great green forest of myrtle bushes, interspersed with dry, stony grassland, decorated with the strange candelabras of the thistles, growing a vivid electric blue, and a huge flaky bulb of squills. This was one of my favourite hunting grounds, for it contained a remarkable selection of insect life. Roger and I would squat in the heavily scented shade of the myrtle bushes and watch the array of creatures that passed us. At certain times of the day, the branches were as busy as the main street of a town. The myrtle forests were full of mantises some three inches long, with vivid green wings. They would sway through the myrtle branches on their slender legs, their wickedly barbed front arms held up in an attitude of hypocritical prayer, their little pointed faces with their bulbous straw-coloured eyes turning this way and that, missing nothing, like angular embittered spinsters at a cocktail party. Should a cabbage white or a fritillary land on the glossy myrtle leaves, the mantises would approach them with the utmost caution, moving almost imperceptibly, pausing now and then to sway gently to and fro on their legs, beseeching the butterfly to believe they were really wind-ruffled leaves. I once saw a mantis stalk and finally launch himself at a large swallowtail which was sitting in the sun, gently moving its wings and meditating. At the last minute, however, the mantis missed its footing, and instead of catching the swallowtail by the body, as it had intended to do, caught it by one wing. The swallowtail came out of its trance with a start and flapped its wings so vigorously that it succeeded in lifting the four quarters of the mantis off the leaves. A few more vigorous flappings and, to the mantis's annoyance, the swallowtail flew lopsidedly away with a large section missing from one wing. The mantis philosophically sat down and ate the piece of wing that it had retained in its claws. Under the rocks that littered the ground among the thistles, there lived a surprising variety of creatures, in spite of the fact that the earth was baked rock-hard by the sun and was almost hot enough to poach an egg. Here lived a beast that always gave me the creeps. It was a flattened centipede some two inches long, with a thick fringe of long spiky legs along each side of its body. It was so flat that it could get into the most minute crevice, and it moved with tremendous speed, seeming more to glide over the ground than run, as smoothly as a flat pebble skims across ice. These creatures were called Scutigeridae, and I could think of no other name which would be so apt in conjuring up their particularly obnoxious form of locomotion. Scattered among the rocks, you would find holes that had been driven into the hard ground, each the size of a half-crown or larger. They were silk-lined, and with a web spread to a three-inch circle around the mouth of the burrow. These were the lairs of the tarantulas, great, fat, chocolate-coloured spiders with fawn and cinnamon markings. With their legs spread out, they covered an area perhaps the size of a coffee saucer, and their bodies were about the size of half a small walnut. They were immensely powerful spiders, quick and cruel in their hunting, and displaying a remarkable sort of inimical intelligence. For the most part they hunted at night, but occasionally you would see them during the day striding swiftly through the thistles on their long legs in search of their prey. Generally, as soon as they saw you, they would scuttle off and soon be lost among the myrtles, but one day I saw one that was so completely absorbed 
that he let me approach quite close. He was some six or seven feet away from his burrow, and he was standing halfway up a blue thistle, waving his front legs and peering about him, reminding me irresistibly of a hunter who had climbed up a tree in order to see if there was any game about. He continued to do this for about five minutes while I squatted on my haunches and watched him. Presently he climbed carefully down the thistle and set off in a very determined manner. It was almost as though he had seen something from his lofty perch, but searching the ground around I could see no sign of life, and in any case I was not at all sure that a tarantula's eyesight was as good as all that. But he marched along in a determined fashion until he came to a large clump of Job's tears, a fine trembling grass whose seed heads look a little like plaited rolls of bread. Going closer to this, I suddenly realised what the tarantula appeared to be after, for under the delicate fountain of white grass there was a lark's nest. It had four eggs in it, and one of them had just hatched, and the tiny pink downy offspring was still struggling feebly in the remains of the shell. Before I could do anything sensible to save it, the tarantula had marched up over the edge of the nest. He loomed there for a moment, monstrous and terrifying, and then swiftly he drew the quivering baby to him and sank his long curved mandibles into his back. The baby gave two minute, almost inaudible squeaks and opened its mouth wide as it writhed briefly in the hairy embrace of the spider. The poison took effect and it went rigid for a brief moment and then hung limply. The spider waited, immobile, till he was certain the poison had done its work and then he turned and marched off the baby hanging limply from his jaws. He looked like some strange leggy retriever bringing in his first grouse of the season. Without a pause, he hurried back to his burrow and disappeared inside it, carrying the limp, pathetic little body of the fledgling. I was amazed by this encounter for two reasons. Firstly, because I did not realise that tarantulas would tackle anything the size of a baby bird. And secondly, because I could not see how he knew the nest was there, and he obviously did know for he walked unhesitatingly straight to it. The distance from the thistle he had climbed to the nest was about 35 feet, as I found out by pacing it, and I was positive that no spider had the eyesight to be able to spot such a well-camouflaged nest and the fledgling from that distance. This left only smell, and here again, although I knew animals could smell subtle scents which our blunted nostrils could not pick up, I felt that on a breathlessly still day at 35 feet, it would take a remarkable olfactory sense to be able to pinpoint the baby lark. The only solution I could come to was that the spider had, during his perambulations, discovered the nest and kept checking on it periodically to see whether the young had hatched. But this did not satisfy me as an explanation, for it attributed a thought process to an insect which I was pretty certain it did not possess. Even my oracle, Theodore, could not explain this puzzle satisfactorily. All I knew was that a particular pair of larks did not succeed in rearing a single young one that year. Other creatures that fascinated me greatly in the myrtle forests were the antlion larvae. Adult antlions come in a variety of sizes and for the most part rather drab colouring. They look like extremely untidy and demented dragonflies. They have wings that seem to be out of all proportion to their bodies and these they flap with a desperate air as though it required the maximum amount of energy to prevent them from crashing to the earth. They were a good-natured, bumbling sort of beast and did no harm to anybody, but the same could not be said of their larvae. 
What the rapacious dragonfly larvae were to the pond, the antlion larvae were to the dry, sandy areas that lay between the myrtle bushes. The only sign that there were antlion larvae were a series of curious cone-shaped depressions in areas where the soil was fine and soft enough to be dug. The first time I discovered these cones, I was greatly puzzled as to what had made them. I wondered if perhaps some mice had been excavating for roots or something similar. I was unaware that at the base of each cone was the architect, waiting taut and ready in the sand, as dangerous as a hidden man-trap. Then I saw one of these cones in action, and realised for the first time that it was not only the larvae's home, but also a gigantic trap. An ant would come trotting along. I always felt they hummed to themselves as they went about their work. It might be one of the little busy black variety, or one of the large red solitary ants that staggered about the countryside with their red abdomens pointing to the sky for some obscure reason, like anti-aircraft guns. Whichever species it was, if it happened to walk over the edge of one of the little pits, it immediately found that the sloping sides shifted so that it very soon started to slide down towards the base of the cone. It would then turn and try to climb out of the pit, but the earth or sand would shift in little avalanches under its feet. As soon as one of these little avalanches had trickled down to the base of the cone, it would be the signal for the larva to come into action. Suddenly the ant would find itself bombarded with a rapid machine-gun fire of sand or earth, projected up from the bottom of the pit with incredible speed by the head of the lava. With the shifting ground underfoot, and being bombarded with earth or sand, the ant would miss its foothold and roll ignominiously down to the bottom of the pit. Out of the sand, with utmost speed, would appear the head of the ant-lion lava, a flattened ant-like head with a pair of enormous curved jaws like sickles. These would be plunged into the unfortunate ant's body and the lava would sink back beneath the sand, dragging the kicking and struggling ant with it to its grave. I felt the ant-lion larvae took an unfair advantage over the dim-witted and rather earnest ants. I had no compunction in digging them up when I found them, taking them home and making them hatch out eventually in little muslin cages, so that if they were a new species to me, I could add them to my collection. One day, we had one of those freak storms when the sky turned blue-black and the lightning fretted a silver filigree across it, and then had come the rain, great, fat, heavy drops as warm as blood. When the storm had passed, the sky had been washed to the clear blue of a hedge sparrow's egg, and the damp earth sent out wonderfully rich, almost gastronomic smells, as of fruitcake or plum pudding, and the olive trunks steamed as the rain was dried off them by the sun, each trunk looking as though it were on fire. Roger and I liked these summer storms. It was fun to be able to splash through the puddles and feel one's clothes getting wetter and wetter in the warm rain. In addition to this, Roger derived considerable amusement by barking at the lightning. When the rain ceased, we were passing the myrtle forests, and I went in on the off chance that the storm might have brought out some creatures that would normally be sheltering from the heat of the day. Sure enough, on a myrtle branch, there were two fat, honey-and-amber-coloured snails gliding smoothly towards each other, their horns waving provocatively. Now, normally, I knew... In the height of the summer, these snails would estivate. They would attach themselves to a convenient branch, construct a thin paper-like front door over the mouth of the shell, 
and then retreat deep into its convolutions in order to husband the moisture in their bodies from the fierce heat of the sun. This freak storm had obviously awakened them and made them feel gay and romantic. As I watched them, they glided up to each other until their horns touched. Then they paused and gazed long and earnestly into each other's eyes. One of them then shifted his position slightly so that he could glide alongside the other one. When he was alongside, something happened that made me doubt the evidence of my own eyes. From his side, and almost simultaneously from the side of the other snail, there shot what appeared to be two minute, fragile white darts, each attached to a slender white cord. The dart from snail one pierced the side of snail two and disappeared, and the dart from snail two performed a similar function on snail one. So there they were, side by side, attached to each other by the two little white cords, and there they sat like two curious sailing ships roped together. This was amazing enough, but stranger things were to follow. The cords gradually appeared to get shorter and shorter, and drew the two snails together. Peering at them so closely that my nose was almost touching them, I came to the incredulous conclusion that each snail, by some incredible mechanism in its body, was winching its rope in, thus hauling the other until presently their bodies were pressed tightly together. I knew they must be mating, but their bodies had become so amalgamated that I could not see the precise nature of the act. They stayed rapturously side by side for some fifteen minutes, and then, without so much as a nod or a thank you, they glided away in opposite directions, neither one displaying any signs of darts or ropes, or indeed any sign of enthusiasm at having culminated their love affair successfully. I was so intrigued by this piece of behaviour that I could hardly wait until the following Thursday, when Theodore came to tea, to tell him about it. Theodore listened, rocking gently on his toes and nodding gravely while I graphically described what I had witnessed. Aha, yes, he said when I'd finished. You were, um, you know, um, extremely lucky to see that. I have watched any number of snails and have never seen it. I asked whether I had imagined the little darts and the ropes. No, no, said Theodore. That's quite correct. Uh, the darts are formed of some um, a calcium-like substance, and once they have penetrated the snail, they, you know, uh, disappear, uh, uh, dissolve. It seems there is some evidence to think that the, the darts cause a tingling sensation, which the snails um, uh, apparently find pleasant. I asked whether I was right in assuming that each snail had winched its rope in. Yes, yes, that's quite correct said Theodore. They apparently have some um, uh, sort of mechanism inside which can pull the rope back again. I said I thought it was one of the most remarkable things I'd ever seen. Uh, yes, indeed. Extremely curious, said Theodore, and then added a bombshell that took my breath away. Once they are alongside, the um, male half of one snail mates with the um, female half of the other snail, and um, vice versa, as it were. It took me a moment to absorb this astonishing information. Was I correct in assuming, I inquired cautiously, that each snail was both male and female? Um, yes, said Theodore. Hermaphrodite. His eyes twinkled at me, and he rasped the side of his beard with his thumb. Larry, 
who had been wearing the pained expression he normally wore when Theodore and I were discussing natural history, was equally astonished by this amazing revelation of the say it snail's sex life. Surely you're joking, Theodore, he protested. You mean to say that each snail is both a male and a female? Yes, indeed, said Theodore, adding with masterly understatement, it's very curious. Good God, cried Larry, I think it's unfair, all those damned slimy things wandering about seducing each other like mad all over the bushes and having the pleasures of both sensations. Why couldn't such a gift be given to the human race? That's what I want to know. Aha, uh -huh, yes, but then you would have to lay eggs, Theodore pointed out. True, said Larry. But what a marvellous way of getting out of cocktail parties. I'm terribly sorry I can't come, you would say. I've got to sit on my eggs. Theodore gave a little snort of laughter. But snails don't sit on their eggs, he explained. They bury them in damp earth and um, leave them. The ideal way of bringing up a family, said Mother, unexpectedly but with immense conviction. I wish I'd been able to bury you all in some damp earth and leave you. That's an extremely harsh and ungrateful thing to say, said Larry. You've probably given Jerry a complex for the rest of his life. But if the conversation had given me a complex, it was one about snails for I was already planning vast snail-hunting expeditions with Roger so that I could bring dozens of them back to the villa and keep them in tins, where I would observe them shooting their love darts at each other to my heart's content. But in spite of the fact that I caught hundreds of snails during the next few weeks, kept them incarcerated in tins and lavished every care and attention on them, even gave them simulated thunderstorms with the aid of a watering can, I could not get them to mate. The only other time I saw snails indulging in this curious love play was when I succeeded in obtaining a pair of the giant Roman or apple snails that lived on the stony outcrops of the mountains of Ten Saints. And the only reason I was able to get up there and capture these snails was because on my birthday, mother had purchased for me my heart's desire, a sturdy baby donkey. Although ever since we arrived in Corfu I had been aware that there were vast quantities of donkeys there, indeed the entire agricultural economy of the island depended on them, I had not really concentrated on them until we had gone to Katerina's wedding. Here a great number of the donkeys had brought with them their babies, many of them only a few days old. I was enchanted by their bulbous knees, their great ears and their wobbling uncertain walk, and I had determined then, come what might, that I would possess a donkey of my own. As I explained to mother, while trying to argue her into agreeing to this, if I had a donkey to carry me and my equipment, I could go so much farther afield. Why couldn't I have it for Christmas? I asked. Because, mother replied, firstly they were too expensive, and secondly there were not any babies available at that precise time. But if they were too expensive, I argued, why couldn't I have one as a Christmas and a birthday present? I would willingly forego all other presents in lieu of a donkey. Mother said she would see which I knew from bitter experience generally meant that she would forget about the matter as rapidly and as comprehensively as possible. As it got near to my birthday, I once again reiterated all the arguments in favour of having a donkey. Mother just repeated that we would see. Then one day, Costas, the brother of our maid, made his appearance in the olive grove just outside our little garden, carrying on his shoulders a great bundle of tall bamboos. Whistling happily to himself, he proceeded to dig holes in the ground and to set the bamboos upright so they formed a small square. Peering at him through the fuchsia hedge, I wondered what on earth he was doing. So whistling Roger, 
I went round to see. I am building, said Costas, a house for your mother. I was astonished. What on earth could mother want a bamboo house for? Had she perhaps decided to sleep out of doors? I felt this was unlikely. What, I inquired of Costas, did mother want with a bamboo house? He gazed at me, wall-eyed. Who knows, he said, shrugging. Perhaps she wants to keep plants in it or store sweet potatoes for the winter. I thought this was extremely unlikely as well, but having watched Costas for half an hour, I grew bored and went off for a walk with Roger. By the next day, the framework of the bamboo hut had been finished and Costas was now busy twining bundles of reeds between the bamboos to form solid walls and the roof. By the next day, it was completed and looked exactly like one of Robinson Crusoe's earlier attempts at house building. When I inquired of Mother what she intended to use the house for, she said she was not quite sure, but she felt it would come in useful. With that vague information, I had to be content. The day before my birthday, everyone started acting in a slightly more eccentric manner than usual. Larry, for some reason best known to himself, went about the house shouting, Tantivy and Tally-ho! and similar hunting slogans. As he was fairly frequently afflicted in this way, I did not take much notice. Margot kept dodging about the house carrying mysterious bundles under her arms, and at one point I came face to face with her in the hall and noted, that, with astonishment, that her arms were full of multicoloured decorations left over from Christmas. On seeing me, she uttered a squeak of dismay and rushed into her bedroom in such a guilty and furtive manner that I was left staring after her with an open mouth. Even Leslie and Spiro were afflicted, it seemed, and they kept going into mysterious huddles in the garden. From the snippets of their conversation that I heard, I could not make head nor tail of what they were planning. In the back seats, Spiro said, scowling. Honest to God's, Master Leslie's, I have done it befores. Well, if you're sure, Spiro, Leslie replied doubtfully, but we don't want any broken legs or anything. Then Leslie saw me undisguisedly eavesdropping and asked me truculently what the hell I thought I was doing eavesdropping on people's private conversations. Why didn't I go down to the nearest cliff and jump off? Feeling that the family were in no mood to be amicable, I took Roger off into the olive groves and for the rest of the day we ineffectually chased green lizards. That night I had just turned down the lamp and snuggled down in bed when I heard sounds of raucous singing accompanied by gales of laughter coming through the olive groves. As the uproar got closer, I could recognise Leslie's and Larry's voices combined with Spiro's, each of them appearing to be singing a different song. It seemed as though they had been somewhere and celebrated too well. From the indignant whispering and shuffling going on in the corridor, I could tell that Margot and Mother had reached the same conclusion. They burst into the villa, laughing hysterically at some witticism that Larry had produced, and were shushed fiercely by Margot and Mother. Do be quiet, said Mother. You'll wake Cherry. What have you been drinking? Wine, said Larry in a dignified voice. He hiccuped. Wine, said Leslie. And then we danced, and Spiro danced, and I danced, and Larry danced, and Spiro danced, and then Larry danced, and then I danced. I think you'd better go to bed, said Mother. And then Spiro danced again, said Leslie, and then Larry danced. All right, dear, all right, said Mother. Go to bed, for heaven's sake. Really, Spiro, I do feel you shouldn't have let them have drink so much. Spiro danced, said Leslie, driving the point home. I'll take him to bed, said Larry. 
I'm the only sober member of the party. There was the sound of lurching feet on the tiles as Leslie and Larry, clasped in each other's arms, staggered down the corridor. I'm now dancing with you, came Leslie's voice as Larry dragged him into his bedroom and put him to bed. I'm sorry, Mrs. Dorris, said Spiro, his deep voice thickened with wine, but I couldn't stop thems. Did you get it? said Margot. Yes, Missy Margos, don't you worry, said Spiro. It's down with Costas. Eventually Spiro left, and I heard Mother and Margot going to bed. It made a fittingly mysterious end to what had been a highly confusing day as far as I was concerned. But I soon forgot about the family's behaviour, as, lying in the dark, wondering what my presents were going to be the following day, I drifted off to sleep. The following morning I woke and lay for a moment wondering what was so special about that day, and then I remembered. It was my birthday. I lay there, savouring the feeling of having a whole day to myself when people would give me presents and the family would be forced to accede to any reasonable requests. I was just about to get out of bed and go and see what my presents were, when a curious uproar broke out in the hall. Hold its head! Hold its head! came Leslie's voice. Look out, you're spoiling the decorations, wailed Margot. Damn the bloody decorations, said Leslie. Hold its head. Now, now, dears, said Mother, don't quarrel. Dear God, said Larry in disgust. Dung all over the floor. The whole of this mysterious conversation was accompanied by a strange pitter-pattering noise, as though someone were bouncing ping-pong balls on the tile floor of the hall. What on earth, I wondered, was the family up to now? Normally at this time they were still lying, semi-conscious, groping bleary-eyed for their early morning cups of tea. I sat up in bed, preparatory to going out in the hall to join in whatever fun was afoot, when my bedroom door burst open and a donkey, clad in festoons of coloured crepe paper, Christmas decorations and with three enormous feathers attached skilfully between its large ears, came galloping into the bedroom Leslie hanging grimly onto its tail, shouting, Whoa, you bastard! Language, dear, said Mother, looking flustered in the doorway. You're spoiling the decorations, screamed Margot. The sooner that animal gets out of here, said Larry, the better. There's dung all over the hall now. You frightened it, said Margot. I didn't do anything, said Larry indignantly. I just gave it a little push. The donkey skidded to a halt by my bedside, and gazed at me out of enormous brown eyes. It seemed rather surprised. It shook itself vigorously, so that the feathers between its ears fell off, and then very dexterously it hacked Leslie on the shin with its hind leg. "'Jesus!' roared Leslie, hopping around on one leg. "'It's broken my bloody leg!' "'Leslie, dear, there's no need to swear so much. Remember Cherry!' The sooner you get it out of that bedroom, the better, said Larry. Otherwise the whole place will smell like a midden. You've simply ruined its decorations, said Margot, and it took me hours to put them on. But I was taking no notice of the family. The donkey had approached the edge of my bed and stared at me inquisitively for a moment, and then had given a little throaty chuckle and thrust in my outstretched hands a grey muzzle as soft as everything soft I could think of. Silkworm cocoons, newly born puppies, sea pebbles, or the velvety feel of a tree frog. Leslie had now removed his trousers and was examining the bruise on his shin, cursing fluently. Do you like it, dear? asked Mother. 
like it. I was speechless. The donkey was a rich, dark brown, almost a plum colour, with enormous ears like arum lilies, white socks over tiny polished hooves as neat as a tap dancer's shoes. Running along her back was the broad black cross that denotes so proudly that her race carried Christ into Jerusalem and has since continued to be one of the most maligned domestic animals ever. And round each great shining eye, she had a neat white circle, which denoted that she came from the village of Gasturi. You remember Katerina's donkey that you liked so much, said Margot. Well, this is her baby. This, of course, made the donkey even more special. The donkey stood there looking like a refugee from a circus, chewing a piece of tinsel meditatively, while I scrambled out of bed and flung on my clothes. Where, I inquired breathlessly of Mother, was I to keep her? Obviously I couldn't keep her in the villa in view of the fact that Larry had just pointed out to Mother that she could, if she wished, grow a good crop of potatoes in the hall. That's what the house Costas built is for, said Mother. I was beside myself with delight. What a noble, kindly, benevolent family I had. How cunningly they'd kept the secret from me. How hard they'd worked to deck the donkey out in its finery. Slowly and gently, as though she were some fragile piece of china, I led my steed out through the garden and round into the olive grove, opened the door of the little bamboo hut and took her inside. I thought I ought to just try her for size, because Costas was a notoriously bad workman. The little house was splendid. Just big enough for her. I took her out again and tethered her to an olive tree on a long length of rope. Then I stayed for half an hour in a dreamlike trance, admiring her from every angle while she grazed placidly. Eventually I heard Mother calling me into breakfast, and I sighed with satisfaction. I had decided that, without any doubt whatsoever, and without wishing in any way to be partisan, this donkey was the finest donkey in the whole of the island of Corfu. For no reason that I could think of, I decided to call her Sally. I gave her a quick kiss on her silken muzzle and then went into breakfast. After breakfast, to my astonishment, Larry, with a magnanimous air, said that if I liked, he would teach me to ride. I said that I didn't know he could ride. Of course, said Larry airily. When we were in India, I was always galloping about on ponies and things. I used to groom them and feed them and so forth. Have to know what you're doing, of course. So, armed with a blanket and a large piece of webbing, we went out into the olive grove, placed the blanket on Sally's back and tied it into position. She viewed these preparations with interest, but a lack of enthusiasm. With a certain amount of difficulty, for Sally would persist in walking round and round in a tight circle, Larry succeeded in getting me onto her back. He then exchanged her tether for a rope halter and rope reins. Now, he said, you just steer her as though she's a boat. When he wanted to go faster, just simply kick her in the ribs with your heels. If that was all there was to riding, I felt it was going to be simplicity itself. I jerked on the reins and dug my heels into Sally's ribs. It was unfortunate that my fall was broken by a large and exceptionally luxuriant bramble bush. Sally peered at me as I extricated myself with a look of astonishment on her face. Perhaps, said Larry, 
You ought to have a stick, so then you can use your legs for gripping onto her and you won't fall off. He cut me a short stick, and once again I mounted Sally. This time I wrapped my legs tightly around her barrel body and gave her a sharp tap with my switch. She bucked several times indignantly, but I clung on like a limpet, and to my delight, within half an hour, I had her trotting to and fro between the olive trees, responding neatly to tugs on the rein. Larry had been lying under the olives, smoking and watching my progress. Now, as I appeared to have mastered the equestrian art, he rose to his feet and took a penknife out of his pocket. Now, he said, as I dismounted, I'll show you how to look after her. First of all, you must brush her down every morning. We'll get a brush for you in town. Then you must make sure her hooves are clean. You must do that every day. I inquired, puzzled, how did one clean donkey's hooves? I'll show you, said Larry nonchalantly. He walked up to Sally, bent down, and picked up her hind leg. In here, he said, pointing with the blade of the knife at Sally's hoof, an awful lot of muck gets trapped. This can lead to all sorts of things, foot rot and so forth, and it's very important to keep them clean. So saying, he dug his penknife blade into Sally's hoof. What Larry had not realised was that donkeys in Corfu were unshod, and that a baby donkey's hoof is still, comparatively speaking, soft and very delicate. So, not unnaturally, Sally reacted as though Larry had jabbed her with a red-hot skewer. She wrenched her hoof out of his hands, and as he straightened up and turned in astonishment, she did a pretty pirouette and kicked him neatly in the pit of the stomach with both hind legs. Larry sat down heavily. His face went white, and he doubled up, clasping his stomach and making strange rattling noises. The alarm I felt was not for Larry, but for Sally, for I was quite sure that he would extract the most terrible retribution when he recovered. Hastily, I undid Sally's rope and flicked her on the rump with the stick and watched her canter off into the olives. Then I ran into the house and informed Mother that Larry had had an accident. The entire family, including Spiro, who had just arrived, came running out into the olive grove where Larry was still writhing about, uttering great sobbing, wheezing noises. Larry, dear, said Mother, dis mother distraught, what have you been doing? Attacked, gasped Larry between wheezes. Uh, unprovoked, creature mad, probably rabies, ruptured appendix. With Leslie on one side of him and Spiro on the other, they carted Larry slowly back to the villa, with Mother and Margot fluttering commiseratingly and ineffectually around him. In a crisis of this magnitude, involving my family, one had to keep one's wits about one, or all was lost. I ran swiftly round to the kitchen door, where, panting but innocent, I informed our maid that I was going to spend the day out, and could she give me some food to eat. She put half a loaf of bread, some onions, some olives, and a hunk of cold meat into a paper bag and gave it to me. Fruit I knew I could obtain from any of my peasant friends. Then I raced through the olive groves, carrying this provender, in search of Sally. I eventually found her, half a mile away, grazing on a succulent patch of grass. After several ineffectual attempts, I managed to scramble up onto her back, and then, belabouring her behind with a stick, I urged her to a brisk trot, as far away from the villa as possible. I had to return to the villa for tea, because Theodore was coming. When I got back, I found Larry, swathed in blankets, 
lying on the sofa, giving Theodore a graphic description of the incident. And then, absolutely unprovoked, it suddenly turned on me with slavering jaws, like the charge of the light brigade. He broke off to glare at me as I entered the room. Oh, so you decided to come back. And what, may I inquire, have you done with that equine menace? I replied that Sally was safely bedded down in her stable and had fortunately suffered no ill effects from the incident. Larry glared at me. Well, I'm delighted to hear that, he said caustically. The fact that I'm lying here with my spleen ruptured in three places is of apparently little or no moment. I have brought you um, a little, you know, a uh, gift, said Theodore. And he presented me with a replica of his own collecting box, complete with tubes and a fine muslin net. I could not have asked for anything nicer, and I thanked him volubly. You'd better go and thank Katerina too, dear, said Mother. She really didn't want to part with Sally, you know. I'm surprised, said Larry. I'd have thought she'd been only too glad to get rid of her. You'd better not go and see Katerina now, said Margot. She's getting near her time. Intrigued by this unusual phrase, I asked what getting near her time meant. She's going to have a baby, dear, said Mother. The wonder of it is, said Larry, as I thought when we went to the wedding, she didn't have it in the vestry. Larry, dear, said Mother, not in front of Jerry. Well, it's true, said Larry. I've never seen such a pregnant bride in white. I said I thought it would be a good idea if I went to thank Katerina before she had had the baby, because after she had it, she'd probably be very busy. Reluctantly, Mother agreed to this. And so the following morning I mounted Sally and rode off through the olive trees in the direction of Gasturi, Roger trotting behind, and indulging in a game which he and Sally had invented between them, which consisted of Roger darting in at intervals and nibbling her heels gently, growling furiously, whereupon Sally would give a skittish little buck and attempt to kick him in the ribs. Presently we came to the little low white house with the flattened area outside its front door neatly ringed with old rusty cans filled with flowers. To my astonishment, I saw that we were not the only visitors that day. There were several elderly gentlemen sitting round a small table, hunched over glasses of wine, their enormous, swooping, nicotine-stained moustaches flapping up and down as they talked to each other. Clustered in the doorway of the house, and peering eagerly through the one small window that illuminated its interior, there was a solid wedge of female relatives, all chattering and gesticulating at once. From inside the house came a series of piercing shrieks, interspersed with cries for help from the Almighty, the Virgin Mary, and Saint Spiridion. I gathered from all this uproar and activity that I had arrived in the middle of a family row. This inter-family warfare was quite a common thing among the peasants and something I always found very enjoyable, for any quarrel, however trivial, was carried on with grim determination until it was sucked dry of the very last juices of drama, with people shouting abuse at one another through the olive trees, and the men periodically chasing each other with bamboos. I tethered Sally and made my way to the front door of the house, wondering, as I did so, what this particular row was about. The last one in this area that I remembered had lasted for a prodigious length of time, three weeks and had all been started by a small boy who told his cousin that his grandfather cheated at cards. I wriggled and pushed my way determinedly through the knot of people who blocked the doorway, and finally got inside, only to find the entire room seemed to be filled with Katerina's relatives, packed shoulder to shoulder like a football crowd. I had quite early in life 
discovered that the only way of dealing with a situation like this was to get down on one's hands and knees and crawl. This I did, and by this means successfully achieved the front row in a circle of relatives that surrounded the great double bed. Now I could see that something much more interesting than a family row was taking place. Katerina was lying on the bed with her cheap print frock rolled right up above her great swollen breasts. Her hands were tightly clasping the head of the big brass bedstead. Her white mound of a stomach quivered and strained with what appeared to be a life of its own. And she kept drawing her legs up and screaming, rolling her head from side to side, the sweat pouring down her face. Near her, by the bedside, and obviously in charge of the proceedings, was a tiny, dirty, wizened little witch of an old woman, holding a bucket in one hand full of well water. Periodically she would dip a bundle of filthy rags into this and mop Katerina's face and thighs with it. On the table by the bedstead, a jug full of wine and a glass stood, and every time the old crone had finished the ablutions, she would put a drop of wine in the glass and force it into Katerina's mouth, and then she would fill the glass and drain it herself, for presumably, in her capacity as midwife, she needed to keep up her strength as much as Katerina. I congratulated myself warmly on the fact that I had not been deviated on my ride up to Katerina's house by several interesting things I'd seen. If, for example, I had stopped to climb up to what I was pretty certain was a magpie nest, I would probably have missed this whole exciting scene. Curiously enough, I was so used to the shrill indignation of the peasants over the most trivial circumstances that I did not really, consciously, associate Katerina's falsetto screams with pain. It was obvious that she was in some pain. Her face was white, crumpled and old-looking. But I automatically subtracted 90% of the screaming as exaggeration. Now and then, when she uttered a particularly loud scream and implored Saint Spiridion for his aid, all the relatives would scream in sympathy and also implore the saint's intervention. The resulting cacophony in that tiny space had to be heard to be believed. Suddenly... Katerina clasped the bedhead still more tightly, the muscles in her brown arms showing taut. She writhed, drew up her legs, and spread them wide apart. It is coming, it's coming, praised be Saint Spiridion, shouted all the relatives in chorus. And I noticed in the middle of the tangled, matted mass of Katerina's pubic hairs, a round, white object appear, rather like the top of an egg. There was a moment's pause, and Katerina strained again and uttered a moaning gasp. Then, to my entranced delight, the baby's head suddenly popped out of her like a rabbit out of a hat, to be quickly followed by its pink twitching body. Its face and its limbs were as crumpled and as delicate as rose petals. But it was its minuteness and the fact that it was so perfectly formed that intrigued me. The midwife shuffled forward shouting prayers and instructions to Katerina and seized the baby from between her blood-stained thighs. At that moment, to my intense annoyance, the ring of relatives all moved forward a pace in their eagerness to see the sex of the child, so that I missed the next piece of the drama, for all I could see were the large and extremely well-padded rumps of two of Katerina's larger aunts. By the time I'd burrowed between their legs and voluminous skirts and got to the front of the circle again, the midwife, at shouts of delight from everybody, declared the baby to be a boy and had severed the umbilical cord with a large and very ancient penknife she had extracted from a pocket in her skirt. 
One of the aunts surged forward, and together she and the midwife tied the cord. Then, while the aunt held the squalling, twitching pink blob of life, the midwife dipped her bundle of rags into the bucket and proceeded to swab the baby down. This done, she then filled a glass with wine and gave a couple of sips to Katerina, and then filled her mouth with wine and proceeded to spit it from her toothless gums all over the baby's head, making the sign of the cross over its little body as she did so. Then she clasped the baby to her bosom and turned fiercely on the crowd of relatives. Come now, come now, she shrilled. It is done. He has arrived. Go now, go now. Laughing and chattering excitedly, the relatives poured out of the little house and immediately started drinking wine and congratulating each other as though they had all personally been responsible for the successful birth of the baby. In the airless little room, smelling so strongly of sweat and garlic, Katerina lay exhausted on the bed, making feeble attempts to pull her dress down to cover her nakedness. I went to the edge of the bed and looked down at her. Yasu, Jerry, mine, she said, and sketched a white travesty of her normal brilliant smile. She looked incredibly old lying there. I congratulated her politely on the birth of her first son and then thanked her for the donkey. She smiled again. Go outside, she said. They will give you some wine. I left the little room and hurried after the midwife, for I was anxious to see what the next stage was in her treatment of the baby. Out at the back of the house, she had spread a white linen cloth over a small table and placed the child on it. Then she picked up great rolls of previously prepared cloth like very wide bandage, and with the aid of one of the more nimble and sober aunts, she proceeded to wind this round and round the baby's tiny body, pausing frequently to make sure its arms lay flat by its sides and its legs were together. Slowly and methodically, she bound it up, as straight as a guardsman. It lay there with only its head sticking out from this cocoon of webbing. Greatly intrigued by this, I asked the midwife why she was binding the baby up. Why? Why? She said, her grizzled grey eyebrows flapping over her eyes, milky with cataracts that peered at me fiercely. Because if you don't bind up the baby, its limbs won't grow straight. Its bones are as soft as an egg. If you don't bind it up, its limbs will grow crooked. Or when it kicks and waves its arms about, it will break its bones like little sticks of charcoal. I knew that babies in England were not bound up in this way, and I wondered whether this was because the British were in some way tougher boned. Otherwise, it seemed to me, there would have been an awful lot of deformities inhabiting the British Isles. I made a mental note to discuss this medical problem with Theodore at the first opportunity. After I had drunk several glasses of wine to honour the baby and eaten a large bunch of grapes, I got on Sally's back and rode slowly home. I would not have missed that morning for anything, I decided. But thinking about it as we jogged through the dappled shade of the olives, the thing that amazed me was that anything so perfect and so beautiful should have matured and come forth from the interior of what, to me, was an old woman. It was like I reflected, breaking open the old brown prickly husk of a chestnut and finding the lovely gleaming trophy inside. <laughs>